So just a uh, couple quick comments here. I noticed uh, I, we may, Jay, I don't know if we have two uh, pounding lists there because it looked like chocolate fell off the list. I'm just, I noticed that and I just wanted to note that um, because uh, much has been done in that area and I'm not complaining. I just, I just did note that when the list went up there that uh, most of the other items remain. Now, to that end, I want to give a lot of credit this week to Jackie Hayes, who uh, took me on a little chocolate outing that was a glorious little event to uh, a place in, in, uh, in Berthid. Did I say that right? Because it doesn't really sound like it's spelled. So, all right. So, yes, we went there and, uh, and had a lovely time. So I want to thank her for that. But uh, I did notice that when the list went up. Uh, Second thing is I had the chance this last week as well uh, to go to Vista Ridge Academy at the end of the school day, and uh, that was an amazing experience. And I've been out there, I was there before um, when we were here for the interview back in November, but this was a chance to get there when the students were around, and so I came at the end of the day to try to uh, just see some of the parents and as they were picking up their kids and see the kids as they went home. And it's an, it's an amazing operation going on there. Uh, Principal Hodgson and so many of the others that are there that are a part of that are doing an amazing work. And uh, we'll comment more on that as I, as I understand it better and better. But some things are happening there that we often talk about that we wish could happen in an Adventist school but then it never does. You know, we, there's all those aspirational things we talk about, but then we never actually do what it takes to make those things happen. And from what I can see, some of those things are going on there. And, uh, and I think that's quite remarkable. And I think this church is, uh, is privileged and honored to be associated uh, with a school that's achieving some of those things. So, so fantastic work. And I look forward to learning more and seeing more uh, that's taking place there. So, all right, let's pray and let's jump into this passage today. Father in heaven, we pray your Holy Spirit will be with us today, that you will give us those ears that hear, that can discern the shepherd's voice uh, from all of the clamoring around. Help us today to learn a little more about Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So we're in John chapter 2. And you heard the story read just a moment ago, or at least this, this piece of a story, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, I'll read again. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, you hear that story, and it's a little strange, and you might wonder, why in the world was any of this happening at all? And, and this is, there's actually an insight here that's very useful to us. It's an insight in the context of how one decision leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And, 
sometimes over time, we end up transforming spaces and things that were originally intended for one purpose and they end up in another. You see, it wasn't all just evil that brought this about. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't some evil going on, but it wasn't all entirely that. Understand the context of this story. The Passover was approaching. And as the Passover was approaching, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Okay, what are the implications of this? All right, the Passover was a big event where all the Jews were supposed to come to Jerusalem. And you came to Jerusalem, and at a certain moment in time, everyone was to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Now, back in the days when everyone that was a part of Israel lived in that area, you could conceivably travel to Jerusalem with your lamb. But times had changed. There was a thing called the Jewish diaspora. And what that meant was that the Jews, yes, there were still a lot of them there, but many of them had moved to other places within the empire. And when the time of Passover came, if you were a faithful Jew, you traveled back to Jerusalem. You might be traveling from, from Ephesus or from Corinth or even from Rome. You traveled back to Jerusalem. It wasn't convenient to bring your lamb with you. So what that meant was when you arrived, you needed one. And you might not even be a shepherd anyway by now. How many of you could take a lamb with you? I don't have any lambs. So you traveled to Jerusalem and you needed a lamb. So when you go, or a, or a, or a bull or, or a dove, if you couldn't afford, you know, so there were a lot of different things that were offered that were options. So you traveled to Jerusalem and you bought a lamb for your sacrifice. All right? So a lot of people coming in, high demand for sheep. There's even, there's even a version of the story that the shepherds in Bethlehem who were watching the sheep on the night that Jesus was born when the angel appears, that in fact those sheep may well have been uh, sheep that were specifically being raised to be sold in Jerusalem for Passover. It's kind of a neat angle on the story that, that I hope is true because it's a neat angle on the story. But anyway, whether it is or not, you had to come to Jerusalem and you had to buy your sacrifice. So you've got all this demand. You've got all these people coming to Jerusalem looking for lambs. And if you are a reasonably wise business person, what do you do? You set up an operation to sell lambs or sacrificial animals somewhere close to the temple court. But there's another issue. When people are coming in from all over the empire, they don't all have the same money, do they? They've all got coins from different places. And so what are you going to do? Well, okay, you're going to set up money changer places so that you can exchange money so that you can buy with the local currency. But if you are an enterprising and an entrepreneurial priest, you're going to see a big business opportunity here. And you're going to say, hey, let's put a corner on both of these markets. Where does everybody need these things? They need them at the temple. So let's sell lambs at the temple 
and will only sell them if you buy them with the temple money. So you can come with money from anywhere in the world. You can exchange your money for temple money. Then you can buy the sheep with the temple money. We can do the whole operation right here. In fact, let's set it up here in the outer court. Okay, that has the feeling of a public service, doesn't it? Coupled with a profit opportunity. But there's a couple problems with this. One was when you have a captive market like that and a profit opportunity like that, it's hard to not take advantage of it. Especially when a lot of the people who are traveling to Jerusalem are actually very well-to-do and can afford to overpay for sheep. So that's what they did. They set it up. And they set it up in the part of the temple referred to as the court of the Gentiles. You see, Gentiles were not allowed to go into the inner courts where, where only the Jews could go. The only part of the temple where the Gentiles could come was this outer court. But it also was very convenient to turn it into this marketplace. So when Jesus came to the temple that day, just before Passover, and the booming business was going on in this only space where Gentiles were allowed to come and worship, it didn't sit well with him. And so he made the whip out of cords, and he drove the animals out, and he tipped over all of the tables of the money changers. In verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And then verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now this is actually a quote. This is a quote from Psalm, what we would call Psalm 96. And the interesting thing about this, this is actually a quote that had been attributed to what the Messiah would do. So let me take you to Psalm 96. And you can hear these words. Psalm 96, and we're going to start in verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. I'm sorry, not 96. I'm reading the wrong Psalm. 69. A little, little dyslexia there today. All right. All right, Psalm 69. There it is. Uh, beginning in verse 6. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Now verse 9. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. This is what the disciples remembered when they saw Jesus do this. Now, that's a little potentially obscure to us. We would not necessarily equate those two things together. How in the world were those words in the disciples' mind in a way that they could remember? I mean, there's like 150 psalms. How in the world do they know all these words? Okay, well, I'll tell you how. 
The Psalms were the songs they sung. We forget that because they're translated out of Hebrew into English and they don't feel like songs to us. They don't flow like songs. But the way the disciples knew this was this was a song they knew. All right, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, that's a song, but, but how would they know all the words of the songs? Well, you'd be amazed how many songs you know all the words to. And in fact, if we just go into a worship context, I'll do an example here. If I said to you, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, what would you say? Let me hide myself in thee. Okay, you know that song. So if I made a reference or, I, or something like that happened, you could very easily put that together. Or maybe this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Okay, it's there, isn't it? Uh, uh, let's, let's do another one. Meet me in heaven. We'll join hands together. What's next? Come on. Somebody's from the 70s. Meet me by the Savior's side. I'll meet you in heaven. We'll join hands together. Yeah, you remember that. Those were good days, right? All right, how about this? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yeah, Sandy Patty. There it is. All right, very good. How about this one? You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will, yeah, I can't remember it now. Lord, blessed be your name. Do you know that one? That one's a little newer. How about this one? Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. What's next? Power and majesty, praise to the king. Okay, heiress, songs. All right, let's do another one here. Uh, I'll stand with arms wide. There you go. All right, that's Hillsong. I needed Gable here for this one because I knew he'd get this one. That's Hillsong. That one's a little, a little newer, but it's not all that new. How about this? This is your life. Are you who you want to be? little switch flick for you. Didn't see that coming, did you? All right, how about highs and lows? Lord, you're with me. Now, this is pretty new. I'm pushing you here. Either way it goes. My wife loves that song. That's a new Hillsong Young and Free, I think, actually, is it? Or maybe this one. This is the sound of... Nobody? Elevation worship? This is the sound of dry bones rattling. Now, you guys have some work to do. There's a lot of worship songs out there you don't know yet. What's the point? Why am I talking about that? I'm talking about it because I want to make a point about the importance of, wor of music in the context of worship. And that's not really my biggest point today, but I, I do want to reference that. The reason the disciples recognized what Jesus was doing because they knew a song about it. And it can be very useful in your life to recognize the working of Jesus if you know a song about it. Because those words are with you. And you will know them. And the disciples knew the Psalms this way. They were laid down deep in their heart. And so, so we're looking forward to the day that we get music back as a part of the worship experience. 
and remembering what is so important about it because, because songs lay down inside of us in ways that we don't forget words that we need when crisis comes. So, so here's this psalm, Psalm 96, and, and here's Jesus. The disciples are like, what are you doing, man? And he's clearing the temple, and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This reminds me of a song. Zeal for your house will consume me. And when they thought about that, and they thought about it in the context of Jesus, everybody already knew that this psalm was a psalm about the Messiah and about what the Messiah would do. There's another interesting point in this, and I don't know if you noticed it when I read these words, but again, verse 8 of Psalm 69 says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Was this true about Jesus? Mark chapter 3, verse 20. We find these words. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. You see, if you knew the song... And you saw the things happening. All of these things are signs that Jesus is who he says he is. Which, which brings up a very ironic moment. Which is the very next verse. So let's read 17 again. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us? to prove your authority to do all this. So what they said to him was, what can you tell us? What sign can you show us that proves you have the right to drive everybody out? But if they'd been paying attention, they would realize, wait a minute, the fact that he just drove everybody out is the sign. How is that the sign? Well, if you understood the prophecies of Zechariah, if you understood the prophecies of of Malachi, then you would understand that one of the things that the Messiah was going to do was cleanse the temple and purify the Levites. So here he is doing that very thing. He's fulfilling scripture with his action, but the people can only stand by and say, show us a sign to prove you can do this. And Jesus is like, no, I am the sign. What I am doing is the sign. And it goes on from there, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. You see, Jesus knows what he has come to do. Don't let anybody tell you Jesus doesn't have any idea what he's doing, and somehow he wandered into this. No, he knows what he's there to do, and he knows how it's going to end. And he says to the ones who will, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He knows. You see, the temple was set up to teach people how sin is taken away. And the sacrifice is the means of atonement. And now Jesus is saying, like he said to the woman, Woman, the time is coming when you won't worship in the temple here or there because one greater than that is here. 
Something greater has come. The one to which the temple pointed. What sign will you do to prove who you are? Look around you. This whole thing is a sign showing you who I am. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Verse 20, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? They missed the point. That's normal for humans. You know that, right? God does something, we miss the point. That's kind of how it goes. They missed the point. The disciples missed this one too. Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. That's actually kind of an interesting inclusion there, those two verses. Because we have this story that's flowing along in the context of reality and the disciples, they're recognizing in the act of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. They're in the present, but then Jesus makes this comment about destroy the temple and I'll build it in three days. And he loses the disciples. They don't get that one. In fact, they don't get that one until after Jesus dies. And all of a sudden you get this little inclusion in the story where John is saying, yeah, we didn't get that at the time, but later on we understood what he meant by that. That one took us a while. All right, so that's the story. Jesus goes into the temple. He's offended by what they've done with it. He puts together a whip of cords. He drives the animals out. He overturns the tables of the money changers. And the disciples think zeal will consume him. Are we used to seeing Jesus this way? Are we used to a picture of the zealous Jesus? Could, could we even go so far as to say angry? Can we use that word? Are we allowed to say that word in the context of Jesus? So here's my premise for the main point that I hope you will agree with me on when we get to the end here. And here it is. You need and you want a strong Jesus who can get angry. That's my premise. You need and you want a strong Jesus who can get angry. Now let me see if I can support that. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is, he, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, so this is John the Baptist, and we know that he came to prepare the way for the Messiah, and that the Messiah was Jesus. We've already talked about this in some weeks ahead. We talked about John the Baptist. So, so here is John's words. So skip down to verse 7. 
But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's kind of interesting words, right? John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees show up, and he says to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who is the wrath to come? It's interesting context, isn't it? You see, Jesus is who he's talking about. You ever hear him described as the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce works in keeping with righteousness. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be thrown in the fire. Then verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. Cleanse the temple. Anybody? Anybody? And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, you're a little bit like, well, whoa, I don't know. But what's the very next words? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. What do you think of John's description of Jesus? The wrath to come, the one with the winnowing fork, the one who clears the threshing floor, the one who burns the chaff with unquenchable fire, and then he introduces Jesus. Not used to that, are we? Not used to that. How can John's description be reconciled with our perception of reality? Well, then I guess it comes down to this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Psalm 90. Let's go back to the Psalms. Psalm 90. Beginning in verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is, that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We don't read that one very often, do we? But here's the thing. If you go just a little further on in the same psalm, verse 14, he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. How can both of these things 
be a part of this. I want to suggest to you there's a dual reality to Jesus, and we need to appreciate it. Because if we don't appreciate it, we won't understand his greatness and his power. John 3.16. John 3.16. You know this one, right? In fact, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's, that's the hopeful word, right? And then verse 17 comes after it. I'll read it here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. All right. Yeah, good, good, good. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And we'd like a period there. And a period works there. But it does go on. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because Jesus is coming and he's going to expose your deeds. Because your deeds are evil and you don't love light. And you're not going to believe in him. And the result will be your destruction. It's a powerful word. Jesus will do whatever it takes to cleanse the people of the earth. And if he has to drive them from the temple, he will do that. But you see, he comes to save. The condemnation only comes if you don't believe. Still don't like it too far? Luke 12, verse 49. This is Jesus talking. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Here's the thing. Jesus is not going to allow us to be united to our destruction. And he came into the world to cause division. What division? The division between those who will believe in Jesus and become a part of the kingdom of God and those who will refuse and who will hang on to the deeds of darkness. He came to separate. He came to separate. Now, everyone is allowed to believe. But not everybody chooses to believe.
Isaiah 63. On the subject of us needing a Jesus who is powerful, who is zealous, and who is able to be angry when he needs to be. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this coming from Edom? From Basra with his garments stained crimson. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red? like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. Can you put those two words together? Vengeance and redemption? I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. This is, this is a description of the ordeal that Jesus was going to have to go through. He was going to have to go to the cross for us, and he was going to have to go there without any support from us. It says, I looked, for someone to help. And I was appalled when there was no one. Do you remember the night in Gethsemane? What happened in the garden? Jesus was with his disciples and he said, stay with me and pray. And he took three away, Peter, James, and John, and they went a little ways away. And he said to them, stay with me and pray. And he went away to pray. And what happened when Jesus came back? He found them praying, right? No, they're sleeping. They're sleeping. He said, could you, not, could you not pray with me one hour? He was appalled that there was no one to help. We failed him in our moment. There was, actually, there was one disciple awake, Judas, the betrayer. Isn't that crazy? The only disciple that didn't sleep on Jesus was the one who betrayed him. So he did it alone. And what sustained him? I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation and my own wrath sustained me. Jesus' desire to win the victory over darkness and sin and the enemy was so strong that it sustained him through the cross. So what was the outcome? Revelation chapter 5. It's a picture of the throne room. John in vision has just seen in chapter 4 a description of the throne, but then chapter 5 then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. This scroll is key. This scroll that the Ancient of Days holds in his hands is the key to the reestablishment of the intended original order that God has created. But until someone is worthy to open it, God cannot restore the original order. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. Why was it a new song? Because it could never be sung before. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This is what the zeal of Jesus bought for you. Will you scorn such a great sacrifice as this? You want, and in fact you need, a powerful, zealous Jesus. Because he's the only one who could face down what you could not and defeat it for you. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. You need a strong Jesus. You need a zealous Jesus. You need one who's not afraid to drive those out who are destroying the temple. Is your Jesus strong? Run to him and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Help us to recognize not just Jesus, the meek and mild, but also Jesus, the warrior mighty to save. Yes, the wrath to come upon all who will not be reconciled to the Father, but that is not us. To us, the Good Shepherd, grace and mercy. May we understand the fullness of Jesus.
that we would worship him truly in spirit and in truth. In his name we pray. Amen.